The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello, and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of single motherhood by choice. I dedicate this episode to all the single mothers-to-be out there. We go deep with fertility specialist Dr. Raelia Liu. Raelia opens up on how a single woman can go about having a child and creating a family. A little bit about Dr. Liu. She is a gynecologist and CREI. That's code for fertility subspecialist. Raelia is Director of Women's Health in Melbourne, Australia, where she practices IVF and egg freezing at Melbourne IVF. She holds a PhD in reproductive genetics and a master's degree in reproductive health science and human genetics. Raelia also works publicly at the Royal Women's Hospital and teaches at the University of Melbourne Medical School as a clinical senior lecturer. She's also a co-host of Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. It's a great podcast and I encourage you to check it out. Privately, she's a fun-loving mum of two gorgeous boys. In this interview, we discuss egg freezing, single women using donor sperm, how we use that sperm for intrauterine insemination. We also touch on egg donation, adoption and fostering. I wanted to share with you some words that one of Raelia's patients has written about being a single mother by choice. She has written some points, and I thank her for letting me share these with you. Questions I asked myself before starting on the single mother by choice journey. How to balance a career and be a solo mum? What support do I have in place if myself or child is sick? How will my child, children cope with single parent family? Will I feel lonely during the good times and the bad? Good times being wanting to share milestones with someone. Having a mum village of family, friends or even through online groups, Facebook single parent groups is so important so you feel connected. How will my child deal with questions about their dad when school starts? Being open and honest about their conceptions and about the donor. Giving them the confidence to be able to tell their friends about their conception and help them feel proud of it. How would I feel? Would I connect with my baby if they didn't look like me and look like someone I didn't know that is the donor? One thing that I didn't expect was society's reactions to announcing I was a single mother by choice. Unfortunately, a couple of people I knew felt that I was being selfish for wanting a baby on my own. Because I knew what I wanted, was focused and mentally prepared, negative comments didn't worry me. There are so many more positive reactions from people and strangers wanting to know your story and falling in love with your story and being a single mother by choice just seems so normal and absolutely right. Thank you to the women who left some words on Facebook and Instagram to describe single motherhood by choice. Words that came up included rewarding, empowering, hard but so worth it, roller coaster, liberating, isolating, magical, surreal, exhausting, true love, terrified, excited, fulfilling, selfless, eye opening, 
Epiphany, free. And now on to the interview with Dr. Radia Liu. Dr. Raylia Liu, podcaster extraordinaire, thanks for joining me. It's so cool to be able to podcast with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tash. Now, um, today's topic was going to be about single motherhood by choice. And uh, I thought this would be a great topic to cover because I'm sure that both you and I see a, a lot of these women. Uh, on average, how many times a week would you see a woman who comes to see you who wants to be a single mother by choice? Oh, several times a week. And sometimes I also see patients who come in to talk to me about fertility preservation, um, initially thinking they want to freeze eggs. And when exploring all their options, they might actually decide that what they want to do is have a baby. So there's a bit of overlap in that population of patients as well. And is that usually after you've spoken to them or sent them to the counsellor for discussion or both? It's usually after I speak to them. Uh, and I think it's because, and I'm sure you're the same when you see patients, you know, I like to go through all of their options. And while I'm a big fan of egg freezing and always have been as a preventative strategy in young women who want to keep as many doors open as possible and are being proactive, it's much less than a panacea or silver bullet for women who come in their late 30s and early 40s. And I always make sure that part of the discussion in that group of patients is about, well, what are all their options? Because the only guarantee that you'll definitely be able to have a baby is to have a baby. Mm. And giving options of donor conception, donor sperm conception, can be an option that women haven't thought about because they're not in a relationship. So if I'm 35, I come and see you and I'm I'm really wanting to be a mum and the classic scenario I see in my rooms is that a woman's been with a guy for a few years, they've broken up and often they break up because he's like, oh, I don't really know if I want kids anymore. And she's like, well, I totally want kids. So I come to you, I'm 35, I'd like my own children one day, I'm not sure about when, how would that consult go with that patient? Well, I would talk to the patient about what their goals are and clarify their goals. And I think every patient's goals are different and unique. In terms of creating a resource for them from the, for the future, as if they were trying immediately, I think egg freezing is a great place to start. But it does have its limitations because... There are strengths in numbers with egg freezing and not everybody can make a, a large number of eggs in a single egg collection. So it may involve and actually on average does involve several treatments for women wanting to create a strong resource who are 35 and above. And often that has limitations in terms of what they want to go through physically and also financially. So it's worth exploring if a woman really would like to have a baby and need support or counselling to help her make a decision to become a mum as a single mum by choice or whether it's very key for her to be in a relationship to have a child in that context and that that is a, a deal breaker for her if she's not in a relationship. So I spend quite a lot of time exploring those issues and then also to give women counselling that's not based on averages we do some investigations to look at their fertility, take a medical history, surgical history. Are there underlying factors to consider like endometriosis or other gynecological conditions? 
What's her ovarian reserve like? Is she somebody who can make a good number of eggs in an egg collection if she needs to go down an assisted reproductive treatment pathway through egg freezing or IVF? Is she somebody who might struggle to gain a good number of eggs in an egg collection and would egg freezing look like multiple rounds of treatment to get a reasonable chance of having a baby in the future? So doing those tests and looking into that information can help her kind of space herself and, and think about herself in the context of, of what's possible. Often the question that I get from patients is how many eggs do I need to freeze? How do you approach that question? Well, I think it's all about probabilities. And, you know, we, we do have some data to support that in younger women who freeze 20 to 30 eggs, there's an over 80% chance of live birth using those frozen eggs. And I'm sure in your practice, as well as in mine, I, I now have the confidence to say I have many patients who've come back to use their eggs and have been successful. But that's not the story for everyone. And, you know, as I, as I said, there are strength in numbers. I think in terms of counselling women, it's really important to give them statistical facts. And I think the best data we have is IVF data. So often I do show women embryo outcomes from the ANZARD database and also from our local database from the lab that I work with in Melbourne, which is Melbourne IVF, and show them the outcomes from embryos. It's not a perfect match because most couples and women who go through IVF are making embryos on a background of infertility. So on average, I would hope that most patients electively freezing eggs would have a somewhat more normal prognosis, a more average prognosis, and potentially a little bit of a better prognosis than a cohort of infertile patients. But I tend to counsel conservatively because these are very big decisions that women make moving forward. I also look at the international literature uh, and there is quite a few papers that look at uh, different algorithms for projecting how many eggs are needed. But, you know, we, we see that to give a woman a 70% plus chance of having one baby at age 40, we really need to freeze about 100 eggs. And that's just unrealistic for a patient to achieve. So I would be much more, I suppose, not not pushy and not not certainly wanting to send her down a pathway that she doesn't want to go down herself, but I would be counselling a woman very realistically and very honestly at that age if she wants to freeze eggs that she may be able to have a baby in the future using those eggs, but it's by no means a guarantee. Um, looking back at the patients you've looked after, what are the maximum number of, of um, egg collections you've done for egg freezing on one patient? Oh, I don't actually think I can necessarily answer that question. Um, kind of, I can't remember doing more than about four. Uh, I don't think many women would want to go through more than about four for egg freezing. And, you know, a lot of women, if you can't do well for them at an egg collection, may either pivot or may decide, when I say pivot, I mean choose to have a baby, or they may decide that egg freezing is just not for them. And if they can't conceive naturally, they might use the choice of a donor egg, which is, again, another very reasonable thing to think about. There's a lot of stigma around egg donation, I think, in Australia and 
I think it's got to do with the fact that it's it's difficult to come by an egg donor for many women in, in different circumstances because of the legislative environment that we have here in Australia that egg donation is what we call altruistic, meaning that you can't pay someone to give you eggs, you can't have a commercial arrangement. It's also non-anonymous, so you can't have an egg donor that is you know, unknown completely to either the patient or, or basically the donor register. And what that means is that because egg egg collection and, and IVF can be quite onerous on a, a person going through it, there's not that many women putting up their hands to become a donor for someone they don't know. There are a few absolutely amazing women who do do that, uh, but it's, it's uncommon. And so when women use an egg donor in Australia, it's more likely to be a friend or a friend of a friend or a family member. So in terms of, you know, egg donation, there's not that many women doing it because it's not that easy to come by. And so there's still quite a lot of stigma, but you know, it can be a beautiful way to have a family and it can be a way that women can take the pressure off if they're not ready to have a baby immediately, but they might want to keep options open for the future in a different way. Earlier you mentioned that you've had quite a lot of patients coming back to use their eggs. It's, it's interesting because in my practice, uh, I really can't remember the last time I had someone come back to use their eggs but at the same time, I'm doing a lot of egg freezing and often I wonder what's going to happen to these eggs? You know, are we inadvertently creating egg donor banks and hey, maybe that's not, not an issue or a problem, but I, I do wonder um, why these women don't come back. In your experience, what is the number one reason they don't come back to use their eggs? Well, I can tell you that most of my patients who've come back to use their eggs have come back with a partner when they were single at the time of freezing eggs, which is interesting. I've actually had two patients this week who I've done egg thaw cycles for Tash. So I do have quite a few patients who've been successful, which is beautiful. Um, in terms of why women don't come back, I think there'll always be a proportion of women who freeze eggs who don't need to use their frozen eggs because they've decided that they don't want to have a baby or they don't want to have a baby yet. And there'll be some women who manage to conceive naturally if they do want to have a baby and their plan B is, is not needed or, or not needed to be called upon. I think we really have to have a really long viewpoint in terms of our assessments of egg freezing because women may come back to have a second or third child when they've been able to have their first baby naturally and we may not get that data for another decade uh, in terms of after the birth of, of their first child or after they decide to freeze eggs. So I think there's, there's unfortunately, because it is a relatively new technology, I think we can't necessarily make prospective inferences based on our retrospective analysis of, of the data so far. But I think that, you know, there's, it's quite a, a somewhat straightforward pathway if you decide you don't want to use your eggs you can decide to discard them so warm them and let them go or you can decide to donate them to another person and there will always be more women who need a donor eggs than there are available donor eggs and it's an absolutely beautiful gift to give another woman to start a family 
when she can't with her own eggs. And then, of course, we can donate them to science and research and, you know, they will be used in, in that circumstance to learn more and do better in the future for patients in IVF. So there's so many ways that they can be useful moving into the future. And hopefully, as you, as you pointed out, they might be a source of altruistic egg donation for the future because there will be a proportion of women who've collected their eggs and not you not use them themselves who might donate them to other women. So say you've got a 39-year-old woman and she's not keen on freezing eggs despite the fact she's got a very high ovarian reserve. She wants to be a mum this year. Um, what are her options for use of donor sperm? So... I often start with artificial insemination or IUI treatment uh, as a first-line treatment for, for patients under 40. In terms of the process, what happens is there's, in Victoria, it might be a little bit different to in New South Wales, but we have extensive counselling that happens and that involves kind of a psychological evaluation, but more so supportive counselling and orientation to the Victorian legislation around donor sperm. In our state, there's a donor register and when a child is of majority, so 18, they can find out identifying information about their donor and the donor register is kept at VATA, which is the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority. It'll be a little bit different, I'm sure, in New South Wales. So there's a lot of counselling around those aspects. There's also a medical workup. So in order to conceive successfully by artificial insemination, I would want the woman to have normal pelvic anatomy, patent fallopian tubes, not have a significant underlying medical condition like endometriosis that might detract from her chances. And I would generally actually flush the tubes. I'd send her for what we call a high or an ultrasound tubal flush, just to make sure that there's an optimal chance of conception in the month that we're going to do artificial insemination. She then has uh, an array of tests looking at infectious diseases to make sure that we know her status and also that she's not at risk of choosing a donor from whom she can contract an infectious disease. Now, our donors are screened for lots of things like hepatitis and HIV, but some infections like cytomegalovirus or CMV can be quite common in the community and we wouldn't rule a donor out if they had had CMV, but we would want our recipient woman to know her risk and, and make an informed choice in choosing that donor. So we do some extra tests for things like cytomegalovirus and human lymphocytic viruses. We then do some preconception genetic screening and the minimum that we screen both donors and uh, recipients for uh, cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy and fragile X. And that is to make sure that a woman is aware of her reproductive risk of those recessive conditions. So recessive conditions are genetic conditions that we all carry and we probably all carry about five lethal mutations of genes in our bodies, but we have no idea that we do because one good copy is enough. And so what we want to make sure is that when a woman is selecting a donor, she selects a donor who is compatible with her genetic profile so that she's not at increased risk of having a baby with one of those conditions. 
And we also do what's called a karyotype, which is a chromosome study, looking at the kind of volumes of the DNA library to make sure that that reproductive risk is either normal or if there's a concern that it's known before we get started. Because if there was, we might not go down the artificial insemination pathway. We might use IVF where we could use genetic testing of embryos. So it's a quite an extensive counselling and medical workup before deciding which pathway to go by. And then, of course, we do the same things that you or I would do for any woman trying to get pregnant, try and maximise her chance of success. So making sure her thyroid is in order, doing all the routine antenatal screening bloods, making sure that she's ready to be pregnant, that we've boosted her immunity to things like rubella and chickenpox if we can, all of that routine stuff. And if we found anything on her ultrasound that we could you know, optimise to improve her chance of pregnancy, like removing a polyp or if there was a fibroid in the uterus, sorting that out before we started, we'd, we'd do all of that. So it's a little bit of a medical workup and then also just donor counselling and selecting a sperm donor. Yeah, sounds very similar to New South Wales, I'd say. Um, with your patients who have a few cycles of IUI using donated sperm, whether it's known or anonymous, donor, you know, clinic recruited sperm, how many cycles of IUI do you generally do before you move to IVF? Because this is a very common question I get from patients. Sure. Well, look, it really does depend on what you just spoke about, whether it is clinic recruited donor sperm or if it is a known donor. If it's a known donor, the process of getting ready can take a little bit longer, but the only limitations on the number of treatments is, you know, kind of the patient's prognosis and and their desire to escalate or remain in IUI treatment for a, a bit of time. So if we have a couple who are trying to conceive, you know, we would suggest that they, if, if there's no concerns, try for six months, which is six ovulations. And you know, it'll take that amount of time for 80% of couples to be pregnant if there wasn't a problem. Unfortunately, because clinic recruited donor sperm is somewhat a precious resource, it's not, um, I guess, an endless resource because for the same reason, to some degree, that it's difficult to recruit a whole lot of clinic egg donors, it's actually still quite challenging to recruit large numbers of sperm donors and that's because donation is not financially compensated and it is altruistic and it's non-anonymous. So donors have to feel comfortable that when children born of their donation are 18 and above that they might want to have contact with their donor. So there is a limited supply of clinic recruited donor sperm in Australia and most clinics, certainly the clinic where I work, have a maximum number of IUI treatments where a woman can proceed. In our clinic, it's actually two with the ability to ask for special privileges, I suppose, in, in, in certain circumstances with certain patients. Uh, if, say, for example, they've conceived but had a miscarriage, we might be able to do another IUI cycle. But under most circumstances at the clinic where I practice, after two IUI cycles, we'd move on to IVF with clinic recruited donor sperm. And what do you see is the, is the biggest hurdle for women who are wanting to be single mothers by choice? I mean, obviously going through all of this sounds like a bit of a hurdle, uh, getting the appropriate, the right donor a hurdle. Any other hurdles? Well, look, I think from, from a, from a, doctor's point of view they're actually a beautiful group 
of women to treat because on the most part when a woman comes to a fertility specialist for help she has an underlying infertility or a couple have an underlying tendency to infertility when single mothers by choice come for help it's a more logistical concern there are other avenues they could pursue with a known donor like self-insemination at home that many couples do and some same-sex couples also do that with a friend but the clinic environment allows them a lot of safety and really independence in terms of their need for the involvement of their donor. The sperm is frozen. It's really dealing with the clinic and making sure there's no infectious diseases risk every time that a woman has insemination with sperm. In terms of difficulties, I think there are so many barriers to becoming a parent as a single woman because it's tough raising children and looking after them and feeling independent and financially independent and having that support in, in times where it's nice to have someone to lean on and share the load. Uh, that certainly I think would be the biggest concern. But for many women, having a baby is something they really want. And, you know, I think to some degree, eventually when a woman gets to her late 30s and early 40s, she, if she isn't in a, if she's single and she's not in a relationship, she does have to really think, well, am I going to have a child? And if not now, when? And so is having a baby with my own egg important to me? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, to prioritise that is, is extremely reasonable. And I think those kind of issues are, uh, are all solvable. They're difficult, but they're solvable. You know, I always have the motto, less stuff, more staff, in the way that I look after my family in terms of my priorities as a doctor. Now I'm not a single mum, but um, I am a busy specialist. And so I do need a lot of help. And there's always the saying that it takes a village to raise a child. So, yes, a partner can provide that assistance and support, but it's not the only way to find that support if you need it. Going back a little bit, you mentioned uh, home or self-insemination. Can you explain to our listeners what that involves? How do you advise your patients to do that? Well, look, I, I don't advise my patients to do it, but I know that a certain proportion of patients do do it. And that's when you have a known donor who is a willing participant in the process. Uh, and provide sperm on the day that you're ovulating. And, and really what would happen is you would, in an ideal circumstance, track your cycle and, you know, you would take the risk, same risk that people take with unprotected sex, that things like HIV and hepatitis and chlamydia and gonorrhea and syphilis and all of these things, if your donor is non-monogamous, can pass to you through this technique. But, you know, the way to do this is really for the donor to provide a sperm sample and for that sperm sample to be injected uh, in the vagina and using a syringe and a sterile container is as good a method as any. But you've got to remember also that your chance of getting pregnant if you're 21 and there's nothing wrong with you per month is no better than one in five. So it's, it's not necessarily a one-hit wonder, it's a commitment. And you know, couples that have started off that way and come to me in the clinic have really found that 
you know, the, the difficulties there is that if it's not happening, you know, in the first or second go, then people lose enthusiasm and it can become logistically quite difficult. Yeah, I think knowing the stats from the outset uh, is so important. I show people a graph of their chances of conceiving per month and so many women and couples are shocked by those statistics, you know, especially they look at the 20s and go, wow, it's it's still so quite low. In the 20s, they expect it to be more like 80% per month. And it's like, well, no, it's not. Um Going back to intrauterine insemination, so obviously as a clinician you don't do uh, or advise self-insemination, however you do IUI. Can you explain to our listeners what IUI is? Sure. So IUI is, the way that I practice IUI is generally in combination with ovulation induction. So you can do IUI in a natural cycle, but as humans, we've evolved to have one baby at a time and release one egg in a month in the majority of cycles. And so, as we discussed, not every egg makes a baby. So, in a suitable candidate for IUI, we often use a little bit of medication to induce a conservative, what we call super ovulation, so making more than one egg in the month, ideally making, say, two. Uh, and you know, we certainly wouldn't proceed with the IUI treatment if we thought there was a risk of a high order multiple pregnancy, so triplets or more. So we do monitor with ultrasound when we're giving these medications and it's really important to do that so that we can make sure that A, we're getting the timing perfect and B, that we're making sure that the risk of treatment doesn't outweigh the benefit. So what we tend to do is use medications. You can use a variety of medications. You can use letrozole, you can use clomiphene, you can use follicle stimulating hormone directly to try and call on that extra egg. And then what we do is we track the cycle by ultrasounds and eventually by blood tests so that we can use the yardstick of the ovulation surge, the LH surge that happens to really kickstart the process of ovulation to use that as a yardstick for perfect timing of the insemination. We sometimes, instead of tracking that surge, or at least tracking, but if the surge doesn't happen, sometimes give a trigger, which is an injection that acts as the LH surge so that we can time the IUI perfectly. Then on the day that the IUI is going to happen, the woman comes into the clinic and we do a procedure that is a minor procedure, it's only a little bit more involved than a pap smear. Uh, it's a very gentle procedure and there's no anesthesia required. And what we do is we insert a speculum, which is an instrument so we can view the cervix, which is the neck of the womb high in the vagina. And we pass a little tube through the cervix and inject sperm that's been prepared in the lab. And if that is donor sperm from uh, either a known or clinic recruited donor, it's usually been optimised and frozen and warmed on the day and prepared for the IUI. And do you ever do double insemination? I don't do double insemination, uh, in, but I, I know some clinics do. We don't necessarily see an increase in the chance of pregnancy by doing that. And what we do in our clinic, Tash, is we have a triage of our donors so that not every sperm donor is actually eligible to be an IUI donor. So we have quite a high threshold and quite a, a um, 
you know, kind of set of criteria for sperm donors such that the sperm we're using for IUI is high quality sperm with a very high chance of pregnancy in the month with a single shot. And what stats do you quote your patients when they've got two dominant follicles coming through with, um, say, STEM IUI? So, look, a lot of the time, and obviously it's going to be age dependent, uh, if, you know, in, in an ideal circumstance, what you're trying to achieve with IUI in a one-shot IUI is very similar to what the chance would be naturally in a month trying second daily around ovulation, which is somewhere between, um, you know, kind of 10 and 20% depending on a woman's age. And the chances of twin if she's got, say, twins if she's got two dominant follicles? So you'd think it would be quite high, but what we actually see is that if a woman conceives through IUI with two follicles and she's pregnant, if you take 10 women like that, nine will be having one baby and only one will be having twins. So it's what I would call an acceptable multiple pregnancy rate. Now, it's certainly higher than what we see in nature. In terms of natural intercourse, we'd see one set of twins in every 80 pregnancies. So it's, it's a significantly increased rate of, of multiple pregnancy, but it's really one of the ways that we help the technology to improve outcomes. So we take that risk and, and if a woman for other reasons really shouldn't have a multiple pregnancy, I have a patient like that at the moment that I treated with IUI who has what's called a, a uterus de Delphus. So she's got two uteruses instead of one, but they're both of them very small and that's just something she was born with. But it wouldn't be a very um, happy circumstance for her to have a twin pregnancy in the one uterus. So we elected with IUI to not stimulate, not give extra hormones. That sounds like a very sensible decision. Um, how about things like adoption and fostering in in uh, Victoria? I mean, as a, as Look, a fertility think, doctor, I'm not sure if you've got your pulse on that because they're usually not things we see as doctors, but how many single mothers by choice go down that path first? Do you know? Well, look, I think in Victoria, it's actually very hard for a single woman to adopt a child. And I think it's hard for couples as well. As you say, I don't deal with it directly, but I have had patients come to see me seeking assisted reproductive treatment uh, that have looked down the adoption pathway and found it uh, very difficult. Yeah, it's in kind terms of, of fostering. Um, it's kind of heart sinking. Sorry. Yeah, it yeah. is heart sinking. And in terms of fostering, I think it's it's a beautiful thing that that you can do to foster a child. And I, I think it, it's really again a difficult legal scenario because it's not it's nobody's first choice to have a baby and then have them taken away. And I think people worry about that with foster care that children may and, and obviously there's so many children who need help and it's such an amazing and, and beautiful thing to, to foster a child. I think a lot of people probably worry about what happens if, you know, kind of you invest emotionally and love this baby and it's taken away. And the other thing about, you know, kind of fostering is I'm sure families are prioritised, you know, that have a two-parent scenario and that's probably because of, 
you know, various reasons in the in the governance of, of fostering. So it's something that I haven't seen many single women do, but I, I don't propose to be an expert in that area. Yeah, that reminds me of a case I had years ago, a beautiful couple who were having, um, came to see me for recurrent pregnancy loss, lots of tests done. Uh, we did uh, genetic screening and then they were both carriers of cystic fibrosis, so they proceeded down the path of IVF, PGD, weren't getting pregnant, multiple cycles, then ended up fostering a couple of um, kids, a brother and sister, and then eventually adopted them. And it was just so interesting to see them go through all of these, you know, treatment options and then years later end up with a family, but not as they may have seen it when they first started out, you know, wanting to start a family. Um, but, yeah, really, that was a really nice story. Um, countries around the world where women who are single are not allowed to access IUI or IVF treatments, do you know much about that? Well, I've certainly treated patients with egg freezing who've come from places like Abu Dhabi and Singapore, where the jurisdiction is that they cannot freeze eggs as a single woman. I have never treated a patient coming from overseas with donor sperm. So it's an interesting conundrum. Look, I think we discriminate against single women in our society in terms of the way Medicare rebates are documented the eligibility criteria for assisted reproduction is medically infertile and for many years and certainly in Victoria single women who are otherwise not infertile have been discriminated against in that they have had barriers to access to Medicare rebates so while there are not barriers to treatment access there certainly are financial barriers uh, created by that language and I've you know had many a debate over time with my colleagues um, you know kind of saying that we should revolt against this and um, and join together to try and get rid of these discriminatory concerns within our own framework. I think it's really much more acceptable now for single women to have a family and that families don't come in one kind of cookie cutter, you know, kind of nuclear 1950s type of, of arrangement that you can have same-sex couples have families, that you can have single women have families, uh, that we have joined families and kind of, you know, any type of family, foster parent families, adopted parent families, and that there are so many different and healthy and normal ways to to be a family but I think there still is a lot of stigma and you know it's also probably worth remembering that you know women who are probably in their 50s and 60s now will probably remember their them being kind of taken away from their families if they had an unplanned pregnancy and their babies being forcibly adopted because that's what our society used to think was the right thing not that long ago. So I, I think we are evolving, but I think there's still a really long way to go in terms of attitudes and, I guess, organisational attitudes and Medicare attitudes to fertility in this country, let alone overseas. This isn't 
related specifically to single mothers by choice, but uh, is it true that in Victoria couples or anyone having fertility assistance, ART, needed um, police checks? Yes, it is. We're the only jurisdiction in the world and I think it's kind of a legacy issue because Melbourne was the first place in Australia and actually the third place in the entire world to have a successful IVF pregnancy. And the legislation in this state around assisted reproduction has been very conservative and ever since it started pretty much there's there's been this need to document police checks and child protection checks uh, to make embryos or to use embryos or to do IUI. Now there's been talk by our Premier Daniel Andrews of getting rid of this necessary check because it does delay access to treatment and some people find it quite offensive. Yeah, I'd be but offended. <laughs> I, I think it's been put on hold because of other pressing kind of issues with COVID, so it's not in the front line mm. of their agenda. We have to blame right COVID now. for everything, right? That's it. We blame. Well, I think I think it has caused some red tape, <laughs> red tape cutting delays on this particular issue. Hopefully, they're going to get rid of them. Fingers crossed. And maybe we should organise that meeting about, you know, getting together and talking about social and medical infertility rebates in single women. I think you need to lead 100%. that, Aurelia. A hundred percent because it's a federal issue. It's not something that can be resolved at a state level. The Medicare benefit schedule is a federal issue and it's funded by the federal government. So we really need federal government buy-in to halt discrimination against single women wanting to have a baby through assisted reproduction. And I do hear, although I don't know of any uh, doctors, fertility specialists like ourselves who would not treat single women, Um, and that always astounds me, but apparently that's the case. Do you know of any doctors? Of course we're not going to name them, but do you know of any doctors who don't treat single women? I don't. I actually don't know of any doctors in Melbourne who don't. I I wouldn't be surprised that people exist in that that kind of mindset, but I think um, I'm, I'm not sure that I know of anybody and I think mindsets do evolve over time and, you know, just like some people have conscientious objections to other practices in, in gynecology like termination of a pregnancy by choice or the use of contraception and it is the duty of care of those doctors if they feel that they can't offer treatment to refer patients to a doctor who can because it's a reasonable treatment and it's not the doctor's place to withhold treatment from the patient. They are under no, uh, I guess, onus to supply or provide that treatment, but their duty of care should go as far as referring the patient to somebody who can look after them. And if a woman is thinking of becoming a single mum, what what can she do to help her manage single parenthood when she gets there? So I, I, I often hear of people saying, yeah, they should go and see their their accountant. You know, get their finances in order. What else is there that we could recommend these women do? Or you, as a as a woman who has two kids, you know, um, in in looking back, what would you have done if you were starting out well, wanting to be a single mum? Look, I can tell you that it wouldn't have stopped me wanting to be a mother if I was single. If I was not in a relationship, I certainly would. Personally, I feel that that's been something that was important to me and if I wasn't in a relationship I think I probably would have pursued 
motherhood as a single woman at some point in my life, I think it is, you know, good to be financially stable, but it's, again, you know, something that is an evolving circumstance. Just like I say to my my trainees, doctors that, that work with me, when they ask me about planning families and what's the best time to have a family, I always say, you know, you don't have to have every box ticked in order to have a family. You know, life goes on after you have a child and, you know, you don't have to have your forever house or your forever apartment or, you know, you don't have to have seen every country in the world. You don't have to have, you know, kind of your house decked out with amazing furniture. You know, you make you make these choices and um, you kind of decide what you need and, and what we want and what we need are often not exactly the same things and we often do have to make choices in our life and prioritise what's the most important thing to us right now. So I, I do think it is important to, you know, when you think about contemplating bringing a baby into the world that you will need a bit of time with a newborn to kind of get to know each other and it's ideal not to have to be under financial strain but at the same time, I don't think you have to have all your ducks lined up either. I think what you do need is support. And, and I think if you don't have a partner, you, you take that support from other avenues, be it family, be it friends. Uh, and I had a, a patient who I chatted to recently before coming on this podcast to talk about this topic, who is a single mum by choice, who came back to visit me with her second baby that I've helped her have through IVF and you know she was kind enough to kind of you know let me know that she had sought kind of community from things like online forums, mothers groups, uh, all kinds of places, friendship groups and you know restructured her life somewhat in terms of making her life more amenable to having a child but you know childcare is not a dirty word you know, my kids were in childcare from when they were quite young and they survived and many people are in the same situation. So, you know, you, you shouldn't think that because from a financial perspective you need to go back to work to have a baby that, you know, that means you can't have a baby. Uh, I, I'm big on problem solving and I think women who do pursue single motherhood are like me, they're problem solvers. And, you know, they, I think premeditating the challenges is good, but, you know, finding a solution that might not have been your ideal situation, but that is a good solution to daily problems um, can help solve many, many aspects of how you manage with a child. Wise, wise words, doctor. Thank you. I wanted to ask you some more personal questions. Sure. Are you ready, Raylia? I'm ready. <laughs> uh, which people in your life have been your biggest inspirations? Oh, I've got lots of inspirations in my life, personal and professional. Um, my family have always been kind of a personal inspiration to me and very much in my cheer squad in terms of helping me achieve what I wanted to with my, with my goals and career. And, you know, coming back to having my kids, you know, you know me from when I was in Sydney. I did come back to Melbourne um, principally for a fellowship year here at the Women's Hospital where I started my training in CREI, but 
I ended up staying in Melbourne in the longer term, I think mainly because of my parents being here and they have been an amazing rock and support for me and an inspiration in my life uh, and have been very hands-on grandparents to my children. In terms of professional, professional kind of people I've really looked up to and again, I would say coming to Melbourne, I found that I had an amazing mentor in John McBain who is now retired but who was at that time the director of the reproductive services unit at the women's hospital and you know when I applied for the job there I got the job and then I was in a position where I had to ring him up and say to him hey John I'm really sorry I can't take the job because I have an opportunity to go to Cambridge in the UK and do a year of my PhD and, by the way, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And his response to that was, would you like to come in a year's time? And I felt that that was just such a supportive response that told me that he valued me as a person and he valued me as a candidate and as a member of the unit. And that's why I spent only a year in the UK because I came back to take the job at Reproductive Services. And I've, I found him a very supportive mentor, both in terms of professional mentorship and career mentorship, but also in terms of personal mentorship and support of a young mum re-entering a, a workplace in a subspecialist unit. And how was your experience in Cambridge? You did a PhD in, uh, do you want to tell our listeners what you did your, your PhD in? So my PhD was in reproductive genetic screening and it was really looking at different aspects of how reproductive genetic screening could fit into the models that we have in in our health system and the socioeconomic impacts of the screening as well as the health impacts of the screening. So It was kind of a bit of an accidental PhD because it started off as a research project and ballooned out of all proportion. So it first started off when, um, Cash, both you and I have done a Master's of Reproductive Medicine through Sydney Uni, and that was organised under the late, great Rob Jansen. And kind of, I'm sure you did what I did, which is scurry through the back fence of RPA to Sydney Uni a couple of nights (laughs) a week to have lectures at the end of the day. Yeah, so there was a research project component to that master's and I started to do a research project on preconception genetic screening because um, we had a lecturer, Professor Leslie Burnett, who ended up being my PhD supervisor and I was really interested in how he presented the screening program for Tay-Sachs disease and talked about reproductive genetic screening using that as an example, which is uh, a terrible neurodegenerative disease that happens in higher frequency in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, which is my background. So I was interested in it from a personal perspective as well as professional. And I started looking into the effectiveness of that screening program as a research project and then got interested in preconception genetic screening in a broader sense, looking at multiple conditions. And 
It was all around the time that the Human Genome Project was happening and there was rapid advancement in what could be done and and the cost particularly of what could be done was coming down dramatically. So something that started off as really pie in the sky that would never be affordable or achievable for you know the average patient has over that that decade since that time really become something that I offer my patients on a daily basis and now I offer every single patient I see the option to have preconception genetic screening so it, it kind of got bigger and bigger and I added more aspects to the project and it became um, at first I upped it to an MPhil a Master of Philosophy and then I had a few meetings and my uh, supervisor said look really we should up this to a PhD so long long story short that that PhD took me nine years and it was mostly done and started definitely through the University of Sydney but I had the opportunity to do a year in Cambridge uh, which was amazing and at that time my husband also had an opportunity to do a clinical fellowship in the same town so it worked out very well for us and my younger son was born there so uh, we deprived him of British citizenship by bringing him home. <laughs> <laughs> He's never going to forgive you. <laughs> so during your PhD, did you um, read many books? Because my next question is, do you have any favourite books, Ralia, to share with us? Oh, look, I read a lot of a lot of papers during my PhD, not so many books, but I do read a lot of books. Um, so I am a bit of a classic reader. I like to read classics. So I, I've kind of, um, I would say my all-time favourite books are things like Dr Zhivago by Boris Pasternak or, you know, it's cliche, but I love The Great Gatsby. That's one of my faves. But more recently, I've been reading to my children quite a lot and I've been reliving my childhood. So I've, I've noticed that when you go, and no criticism of the authors of today, but when you go into a kid's bookshop or a, an area of a kid's bookshop, that um, kind of you use to choose what you read to your kids, a lot of it's dominated by what's currently in press and there's not a lot of kind of, there are some, but not a lot of books from, from when you or I were a kid. So I've actually been The Dark is Rising sequence by Susan Cooper. I don't know if you've ever read that. No, no. It's amazing. It's It's really lovely kind of fantasy. I think it was written in... I don't know, I don't want to get it wrong, but like the 60s or 70s or something like that. Um, but it's amazing and so much imagination and, um, you know, I'm, I'm loving the, the, young, the young fiction at the moment reading to my children. The dark is rising, you said. Yeah, it's a, okay. it's a series of, of several books. And what's your favourite bookstore in Melbourne? Well... There's not as many as there used to be, but my favourite bookstore is Readings in Carlton, which mm. is a lovely bookstore in Melbourne. I love that one too. And I'm always at the Hill of Content on Burke Street. I don't know if Beautiful. you guys have a Kunakunia in Melbourne, do you, the Japanese bookstore? I don't know. I know there's one in Sydney. Mm. I'm not saying there isn't one in Melbourne, but I haven't been in Melbourne. And what songs make you happy, Ralia? Do you, do you play oh, music, music in your operating theatre? I do. <laughs> I love 90s music. I'm <laughs> such a retrospective kind of person. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I really like – I like 70s music too. I like lots of things. I like the Carpenters. I like all kinds of kind of old music like the Beatles and, you know, all of those things make me happy. 
And I really like some modern music too. I really loved, um, I took my kids to sing along The Greatest Showman. That was pretty fun at the Moonlight Cinema in Melbourne. So there, there are some, some modern musics. And, I, and I, I love Taylor Swift. I have a secret, secret closet love affair with Taylor Swift, but I'm only allowed to play that in the car when I'm there by myself because my kids yell at me when I play that because um, it's not apparently not cool to, you know, seven and, and, um, and nine-year-old boys. But um, <laughs> I never, I never would have pictured you as a Taylor Swift fan. Oh, I'm a total Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> The Chantuzies, I love oh, yeah. the Chantuzies. They make me happy. <laughs> Are you old enough for the Chantuzies? I am indeed. <laughs> and what's your dream collaboration, Dr. Liu? Oh, my dream collaboration in terms of like a professional collaboration. Oh, whatever, uh, whatever well, you dream of. Oh, look. So look from a professional collaboration, you know, I would love to collaborate with all kinds of people in all kinds of spheres to improve the, you know, the as as we were talking about earlier in terms of reproductive rights, but just the rights of women in general and the place of women in society. So, you know, I have, you know, kind of um, reached out to so many, and I'm sure you have with your podcast as well, you know, reached out to lots of different women that I know that I feel can bring meaningful messages to my patients and and you know kind of collaboration in in various spheres as well just through um, Instagram and and other kind of purposes to to bring messages together I don't know if there's one person or one you know kind of like apart from Taylor Swift that would be a dream collaboration yeah what have Um, you reached out to her yet have I reached out to Tay Tay no not yet Bad you've even got so you've even got a little uh, you know pet word for her. I love it. You've got to reach out to her, Aelia. I do, I do. <laughs> that would be a very a very cool collab. Yeah, because she's a bit of a feminist, you know. She's totally a feminist. Uh, top five tips: being the best mum you can be. Can you share tips with us? Yeah, sure. Look, I think to be the best mum you can be, you just have to love your kids and show them love and. You know, I think quality time. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the amount of time you spend with them, just the quality. Just be present, uh, you know, listen to them, listen to the, what their issues are when they want to talk to you about things. Give them space if they want space. I've got one child who loves his own space. I've got another child who, who loves, you know, kind of, you know, someone to hold his hand while he comes to brush his teeth. He loves being with people all the time. I've got a I've got a dreamer and a charmer. He's the charmer. Mm. And my dreamer likes his own space. <laughs> I think letting your kid be themselves, not trying to fit them into a particular mould, not trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and loving them for who they are. And I suppose also not trying to put your own, I guess, values of who they should be on them. Let them be themselves. I, I think that's that's probably my top tips. And don't worry if you if you feel out of control. Every parent feels out of control sometimes. Uh, there's no manual that comes with children. And, you know, being a medical doctor doesn't necessarily give you much advantage in any way <laughs> over anyone else in terms of raising your children. And in terms of, you know, kind of balance, I think, you know, I don't necessarily proclaim that I have the best balance in my life it's something that I that I do can think about and, and does worry me and try and make sure that my kids get enough of my time and enough of my attention 
but you know I think you know if they if they're well nourished and you know have clothes on their back and they love you and you love them and you have great time together have fun together you know good is you know kind of enough and and perfect is the enemy of good love it thank you so much and my last question is how do people connect with you earlier what social so, media forums do you have? Tell us about <laughs> you and connection with you. Sure. So I work clinically as a fertility specialist at Women's Health Melbourne and Melbourne IVF, both in Melbourne. And in terms of our channels, I've got my podcast, which I do with my co-host Geordie Morrison, Knocked Up, which is a podcast about getting pregnant and women's health. And we have a lot of fun. And my social media channels are at Dr. Rayleigh Alou and at Women's Health Melbourne on Instagram and Women's Health Melbourne also has a Facebook page. And last question, Geordie, is it Geordie you said? Yeah. What's Geordie's background? What's her story? Is she a doctor or? No, she's non-medical. Um, so Geordie and I met at the Year 10 United Nations Forum for Young Leaders. <laughs> What, when you were in year 10? Yeah. Wow, you got back a long way. Then we did Alliance Frontiers together. So we have been friends for a long time. (laughs) That's awesome. And Geordie went to uni and was a fashion buyer. So that's her background. And, yeah, so but she is as, you know, kind of I am. She's a a 39 hanging on to it until the 40 ticks over woman. (laughs) And, uh, you know, has life experience and expertise in many of the areas that we talk about. So one of the ways that we wanted our podcast to communicate is we wanted it to communicate on an authentic level and breaking it down for patients because, you know, patients haven't got a medical education that to, uh, you know, give them the advantage of understanding all the jargon and all the, you know, kind of medicalised dogma that comes with reproduction and fertility and you know having Geordie as the co-host really means that if I say something and forget that I should be breaking it down or should be you know kind of explaining terminology she'll pull me up and say hey what does that mean and you know really help us to keep on the level with our listeners. Yeah I've noticed that she does that a few times. Good on her Geordie. Thanks thanks Geordie. (laughs) Thank you so much Relia. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Rayleigh and you. If you've been thinking of single motherhood by choice, I hope it's been informative. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. If you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview or books for us to read. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous. Fanny Tabulous.